welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. Who and, are you again? Oh, yeah. And thank you for listening, uh, listeners. Uh, yeah. I'm so stoked. Welcome back. Thank you. It's been, uh, you've been on assignment for uh, a couple weeks. I was out of town one week, and then I got sick again. Uh, and so I had to sit out last week, and I feel bad uh, about that. And I'm still a little bit sick. You can probably hear it in my voice. Um, and uh, it's very frustrating. I had... I had big plans for June, and uh, they pretty much all got put on hold uh, while I fight off bronchitis for the yeah. second time in seven weeks. Um, we have been here a few weeks, so I'm not sure if you know the news, but the listeners, in case you're curious, yes, the St. Louis Blues are still the Stanley Cup champions. All right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's still very exciting. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not quite over it. I still, like, uh, will, like, read... Uh, read people tweeting about it and get teary eyed again. Okay. Um, but it was, uh, very exciting. And so, yeah, so, uh, am I going to do this bit every week for the off season? Is this what I've been missing? <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. Uh, but no, we have something else. Okay. I didn't read last week because, uh, I wanted to wait for you to be here. We got postcards from Thank you. our friend Peter. Okay. Uh, Peter sent us, he couldn't fit it all on to one postcard. So he sent us, sent us two postcards from Alaska. Um, and uh, I don't want to read all of this stuff, um, but there was one part that I wanted to read especially. Uh, da, 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 and now I can't find it. Oh, yeah. He says right here, May 31st. Okay. He says right here, I'm calling it St. Louis Blues over the Bruins in seven games. Peter called it almost two full weeks before it happened. Man. So yeah, but uh, sounds like we should all listen to Peter. Yeah, Peter sent us some beautiful postcards from Alaska. Uh, Peter, we love getting your postcards, and if you ever want to send us anything, uh, you if anyone else wants to send us anything, I mean, um, you can find the address on the website under about. Indeed, a boot. Uh, um, yeah. In the, anyway. spi- in the spirit of hockey, let's exactly. start saying yeah. boot. Did you hear the hockey news today? Yes. No, you didn't. No. But you're a fan of going to Palm Springs. I am, very much so. I had to not go to Palm Springs because I was sick. That's one of the things I couldn't do. So, well, in in just a couple years' time, you'll have a chance to see minor league hockey in downtown Palm Springs on the Agua Caliente land next to the Agua Caliente Casino. Yeah. So the NHL is expanding again to Seattle. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a team in Seattle. Okay. And Seattle's minor league affiliate... AHL affiliate is going to play in Palm Springs. The Agua Caliente Reservation is building place them, in know, the world is building them an ice rink. Yeah. It's just Palm Springs seems like I, I love it because I love going to Palm Springs. Yeah. I love the idea of that I can go to a cheap hockey game while I'm there, uh, especially if it's hot out. You can go into a, an ice rink, but just just seems like a real clash of uh, what Palm Springs is known yeah. for, which is not sports. Well, I seem to recall when I was a kid, I think. The Angels had their spring training in Palm Springs. Oh, okay. And my dad, being a big Angels fan, would take us to spring training a couple of times. Uh, I think we, uh, yeah, I think we went like three years in a row. And uh, I didn't care. But, uh, yeah. and, and in retrospect, as I got older, I was like, wait, hang on. Like, I didn't even, it made me realize that I didn't even understand what we were doing. Yeah. I was like, we went to watch them not even play officially. Yeah. That's how much my dad was into the angels at the time. So I, like, I went with my uncle one year and he used to do this every year mm-hmm. to the Indianapolis 500 time trials. Oh wow. The time trials where they do the seeding for the Indianapolis 500. It's like yeah. a week or two before the Indianapolis 500. And my dad and I went 
uh, went with my uncle once, but he used to go every year to the time trials. You know, I mean, I, I, and I don't want to, I, I don't judge, uh, like everybody has the, the, the thing that they're so interested in that like even stuff like that, which I qualify as a minutia, um, <laughs> is important. So like, I don't judge that, but it's something that as a kid to me, like it, it was all of a piece. Like we're just going to watch the angels do stuff, uh, whether yeah. it be play a game or train, whatever I, it is. I wish there were still like, cause spring training in California, Palm Springs is the only place, you know, the Dodgers used to have a spring training on Catalina Island. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. I like both of those places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so like, so I associate Palm Springs to the extent that I associate with any sport at all. I associate with baseball, which makes a bit more sense. Uh, sure. but yeah, hockey, now hockey, I feel like fall of 2021, <laughs> go see the Palm yeah. Springs mimosas or whatever they're going to call them. <laughs> well, and that's, it's crazy because I recognize that, that hockey season doesn't go into the hottest time of the year in Palm Springs, but still pretty hot. And so like you could, you could experience such a change in body temp between going inside and outside or outside and inside. Like it could cause problems <laughs> like to, to, to experience that level yeah. of drop or rise in temperature. Uh, I feel like their fan base is, is in danger now. Well, you know what might make the transition easier? What's that? Is listening to some sweet tunes on your earbuds while you're walking in and out of hot and cold places. Speaking of easy transitions. Um, and you can find some great earbuds, some professional quality earbuds at tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com, as I just said, makes professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great today. I use them to listen to the new uh, Tom York EP, mm. I guess. Anima yeah. is what it's called. Tom um, York sticking with the H. Yeah, yeah. That's not the name of an album. Uh, that's just, uh, it's something that always fascinated me that he, he's like, well, my name is Thomas. It has an H in it. Why would I drop that? Just cause I'm going by Tom. I, I, admi- I, I admire that. that. Do we know that his name's Thomas? You know what? I just assumed because the H is in there, but he could be one of these people whose parents named him. It's true. Nickname. I had, a, is- I had a friend in high school whose name is literally Danny. Not Dan, not Daniel. His name's Danny. I, look, I don't want to judge people, but don't you? F- I feel bad for the kid in that. Yeah, the option. You know, he, he at least, my friend Danny, could still go by Dan, right? Because that's shortening. But he can't Danny. go by Daniel. He, I feel I mean, like he can't go by Daniel. Him. But yeah, <laughs> I guess he he can go by whatever the fuck yeah. he wants. It almost feels like you're condemned you to a, <laughs> you, you're condemned to a more casual life <laughs> yeah if you go and and certainly and my friend danny became like this florida beach bum and oh. it's like and i feel like uh, he's like well my name's danny i guess i gotta you know steer into yeah. it yeah i say go with the main thing you want to call your kid i don't know max sure you gotta name him maxwell or maximilian yeah go with maximilian obviously uh okay maxwell's a cool name maxwell's it is smart. Yeah. that's sure. what i think of uh, Maximilian, the robot from the black hole. That's what I think of. Okay. And Maximilian shell who was also in the black hole. I wonder if that, you know, now that I think about it, I bet that's, that was on purpose. <laughs> um, anyway, so Thomas York, his <laughs> album, Anima sounded great on my tweaked audio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweaked audio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweaked audio.com and use the offer code pretension. It's pronounced. Thomas. 
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay. Uh, I can't wait to bring on our guest. You okay. haven't heard him in weeks. Uh, well, you're going to have to wait. You got something Because else? I wanted to mention our Patreon this week. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, we had we did our profile, or rather, you know, you did our profile of uh, Agnes Varda. Um, Agnes Varda with Mariah. What's up? <laughs> we did a profile of the career of Agnes Varda. Oh, okay. Now, who is this? Uh, I don't feel like playing that <laughs> character. Like, I'm too tired. Like, I watched all the wrong movies. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's oh, it's a good thing I was sick. Uh, anyway, so uh, <laughs> your face would have been so red. <laughs> Oh, geez. Okay. I was watching all these zany madcap comedies. Uh, anyway, so, uh, but yeah, and uh, we we chose to do that. Uh, we were going to do uh, Albert Finney. Yeah. Uh, but then when Agnes Varda uh, passed away, uh, we decided to, to swap it out. But we felt like we should still give Albert Finney his due. Yeah. So this week on the Patreon is our, our list of our top five performances by Albert Finney. Uh, and so you can, and it's available only to Patreon subscribers. Uh, we have two tiers. We have $5 and $10 at the $5 level. You get all of, you get audio only of all of our, uh, Patreon content at the $10 level. You get video of and audio of our new Patreon content, as well as access to all of our, uh, commentaries and premium content from the past. So, uh, for an extra $5 a month, you, uh, you have access to a lot of, uh, material. Uh, but Hey, $5, you still get the audio and you can still hear us talk about Miller's crossing and, uh, uh, Aaron Brockovich. We don't talk about Aaron Brockovich. Um, we do talk about breakfast, breakfast champions. We sure do. Let's not give away the whole list. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I'm going to bring on our guest. Like I said, you haven't heard him in weeks. He, uh, is here to, uh, defend a very controversial statement. That he made on Twitter. Which I did not see, and it so is, I hope he will explain it. Uh, well, I'm going to read it in a minute. It is okay. uh, Battleship Retention Editor at Large, Scott Nye. Hello. Uh, first off, Tom York's full name is Thomas. Okay. okay. Rest assured, his parents are not quite assholes. Uh, they just produce Tom York. <laughs> um, uh, second, I work with a guy whose birth name is Steve-O. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, he... I assume his parents are dead at his hand. Yes. I, don't, I mean, he's in his 50s, so they're probably dead anyway. Sure, but, sure. But, uh, yeah. And I bet he felt a weight lifted off his shoulders when they he died. He didn't change his name, I can tell you that. Oh, boy, okay. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. Wow. But, yeah, so he was named, but he didn't change it to that. No, I swore that would be the case, and then someone finally asked, so where'd Steve-O come from? Uh-huh. He's like, that's just what I was named. Um, my dad had a good friend who, when he met him, was named Jeff, but before mm-hmm. too long was officially legally named Bones. Oh, that's <laughs> he changed his that's name to Bones. Awesome. That's uh, he was like a bike he was a mechanic, that's how my dad knew him. Sure. But he was also like a Harley guy. Mm-hmm. And he was he was a a six foot tall man who was probably hundred and ten pounds. He yeah. was so thin that all the other bikers called him Bones for there so long go. that he just decided, you know what? I'm gonna 
I'm gonna Own it. Uh, I'm gonna name I'm gonna name myself that he I didn't get to go because I was still too young. He when he got married, Bones had a Harley Davidson themed wedding. In oh, which, yes, cool. the bride came down the aisle. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome! Uh, I will mention uh, we had a family friend um, named Mike Carroll, last name spelled Carell, but pronounced Carroll. Okay. Um, okay. Sorry, spelled Carell, but pronounced Carroll, uh, and then he married a woman named Carol. So <laughs> it's like, additionally, they also have the same name as the Brady parents. I guess that's true. Oh. Except. Wow. Her name is now, her name is right. Carol, Carol, Carol. And so my, my mom would say, she would always say Carol, Carol, even though like, well, we only, to my knowledge, I think we only knew one Carol. Sure. So she could have just said Carol, but when you have the opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. No, what they should have done is they should have both changed their last name to Brady. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Let's not waste any more time. I am. I have got called up on Twitter here. Okay. From uh, uh, timestamped uh, 1025 a.m. May 27, 2019 from at rail of tomorrow that Scott uh, regarding the box office performance of one book smart. I think I just realized that you said of one book smart. Yeah, it's Saturday morning or maybe Sunday. Okay. Regarding the box punchy. office performance of one book smart and box office in general these days, one, sorry, dot, 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 one, box office doesn't change a movie's quality. If you love it, rejoice that you have it. Agreed. Two, movies are not culturally important anymore. Get used to them performing accordingly. Um, and, uh, yeah, this was not received well by a lot of people. I, I think the people who um, follow me agree, and then they retweeted it, and eventually some other people felt found it and uh was this all within within film twitter no it spread well beyond that to uh average people normies they didn't seem normal to me well they didn't seem part (laughs) of film twitter either okay well i think when we had um was this last whenever last october november when we had um jake and Kristen on and we talked about Oh, yes, yes. We talked about film Twitter. Right. Film Twitter means one thing to you, but I think that the MCU people think of themselves as film Twitter, too. That's true, but it wasn't just the MCU crowd replying to me. There was, like, parts of... uh, I don't don't know if they would consider themselves part of it, but this was the point of view they were expressing, is that I was uh, undermining black culture. So I don't know if they're part of black culture Twitter, um, but this was the angle they were taking. Oh, interesting. Um, That's very interesting. So let's... um, I think I, uh, yeah, I am part of your film Twitter and I think I tend to agree with where you're coming from, but I'm not going to say that for sure until you lay out what you mean by movies are not culturally important anymore. Well, the key difference that the people who disagreed with me were reading my tweet a different way. Uh, I'm not saying that individual movies aren't important anymore. I don't think that'll happen for a long time. I mean, you look at like, in terms of discussing the death of movies, people often compare it to opera and opera was once this like great cultural force and hugely popular. And like everybody knew what was going on in opera. And now nobody knows what's going on in opera. I don't think that will happen to film like in our lifetimes, but I do think it's quickly reaching a point that like theater is at right now where every now and again, an individual new play or individual new musical will matter, but theater itself no longer matters. And that is incontestable right now. I guess the question then is how are we defining matter? That was going to be my next question. Well, it's a broad cultural awareness, I think. Um, I was, you know, I was nine in 1985, but I still knew what movies were coming out in 1985. <laughs> like, I scrolled through the list of just general wide releases that year, 
and I was familiar with most of what was coming out. I wasn't seeing any of it. Mm -hmm. And now people in their 20s and 30s don't know what movies are out right now. There's no wide, persistent engagement with the movies. People don't go to the movies. They go to see a movie. And they might go see, you know, two movies a year, if that. But the idea of movies as a weekly event, as something people sure. do on dates, as just a accepted social activity, I think that's gone. And I don't, I don't see any evidence that it's there anymore. And I'm surprised that people are so persistent in insisting it is because it, I don't know what <laughs> probably because they live in that. This is part of the thing is that everyone increasingly lives in their own niche. Right. And so they are probably around people who know all the movies that are coming out and absolutely make plans to go see the but movies. Are they like that's that's just my guess. Well, and also I mean, that's how I live. I like everyone that I know. Uh, or at least I've no, I don't know. Right. Everyone think I socialize about, with. Right. But think about like the people you work with. How often are they talking about the movie they saw last week? Well, I work in the movie industry. Well, so do you. Yeah, but nobody I know goes to the movies. I mean, no, I, you're right. Actually, yeah. The yeah. Now I think about it. The majority of conversations that I overhear at work are about current TV shows. Right. Yeah. So okay. So as a as a teacher. Yeah. Because you know we're talking about what films going to be in the future. Okay. Well, I teach. I teach the future of America. Uh, and I'll say this. like And Italy at one point. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's coming up again. Um, so a week from today, I'll start teaching Italians again. Um, but, uh, and they're not, and they're taking a film class, but they are not film students. Right. Okay. This qualifies as some other credit. I didn't even bother to learn what it is. Um, social sciences? Anyway. Uh, and so that, so I, I often check in with them to see like what yeah. movies they're watching, what they're aware of. Um, and what I will say, and this harkens back to another debate that's happening right now that has to do with relevance and film changing and that sort of thing is that a lot of what you just said is very theatrically based, like the movies that are coming sure. out. It's not Netflix based. Um, and Netflix or, or Hulu or right. anything like that. Um, and so, the and I do definitely think that people talk way more. Certainly, my students do. They talk way more about TV, right? Um, even stuff. Like, I mean, the most anticipated thing uh, is Stranger Things, like right. all the time. Um, I remember I was Still? Uh, yeah okay. So this <laughs> move is a, on. This is a story that I um, I don't know if you've seen Stranger Things. It's not moving on. Is not like a big aspect of that show. Okay. Um, <clears throat> But I, have, uh, I saw the first episode of the first season. Okay, it's a fine, it's a fine show, and and the actors are doing good stuff, and I and uh, I think that they occasionally take risks, and interestingly enough, the risks are usually the things that the big fans sure. don't really like that much. Um, but anyway, but like I remember when I uh, a couple years ago, I was at a bar with Jen and her brother, and we were watching the Super Bowl, and there was a trailer for Stranger Things season two. And it was still quite a ways off yeah. at that point, but it was like, hey, it's a Super Bowl, so we're going to premiere the, the trailer for it. And the whole bar, it doesn't matter what team they were rooting for, the whole bar cheered at that Stranger Things oh, trailer. Wow. And I was like, oh. And I had no clue that, like, and I recognize that with it, when it's the Super Bowl, it's not like you're only bringing out sports fans. It's people sure. here. And, and people I'm are already hyped fan. up. Exactly. And so they're excited. But, like, 
everybody was yeah. super excited about that. And so I do think that. And yet, when that trailer for the Cloverfield Paradox premiered during the Super Bowl, it could have heard a pin drop in the bar I was at. Right, but but I know a lot of people that went and, and watched it immediately after, and then were immediately well, disappointed. This but brings me to my. Or I want you to finish your point. <coughs> just that, like, I because we I think are in a state of transition as far as like TV sort of taking the place of film yeah. uh, as far as cultural conversation, like way more people. Like I'd say the end of Game of Thrones was right up there as far as discussion, level of discussion as say Endgame. Yeah, easily. You know? uh, and so between that, but then also the idea of theatrical, people wondering like what the future of theatrical film going is as opposed to streaming. I think at this point, because we're in this state of flux with on these two levels and probably another one that I'm not even thinking of, I would say like it's too early to say that it's not important anymore because, but I think, I mean, maybe it's not a permanent state, but I would say right now it's true because people aren't going out to see the movies and streaming doesn't have a broad awareness that the theatrical release movies once did. Well, what do you mean by the streaming part? Not having a broad awareness. I mean, aside from a handful of movies, like how often do a, a, does a Netflix movie get a like huge promotional push or a broad platform on which I it mean, could? If you have Netflix, then you're getting it pushed at you all the time. Yeah, sure. So, like, I, I so I feel like maybe we're using because we're old, uh, aging millennials, all of us. Um, we're using that should the be wrong your, uh, your bar trivia name. Aging millennials, <laughs> yeah. all of us. Yeah, <laughs> um, like the rubric you're say you're using to try and gauge. Uh, I think I'm mixing metaphors here. Uh, uh, a movie's cultural right. importance it, it is maybe not. You know, maybe maybe more people because I'm not. I'm not on. I mean, I, uh, I I follow Tumblr, but I'm not on. Uh, always be my maybe tumblr yeah maybe it's always be my maybe more culturally important than book smart just because it's in everybody's house i think that movie is but i think the number of movies netflix promotes at the level that an average studio did 20 30 years ago sure it's not nearly close i think netflix promotes about the same number of movies that movie studios release every year right but they make more oh yeah, yeah. they make unbelievable amounts of movies <laughs> and tv it's un- inconceivable but uh the number of movies that pierce any kind of cultural conversation or even end up on their front page is very small. And I will say that, uh, so this is something we were talking about off mic and we, we talked about it uh, on the movie journal, or at least we will have, um, my recent, uh, adventure with rotten tomatoes and toy story four, um, led me to reassess mm-hmm. the level of engagement that people have because people felt so protective and I would also say maybe a bit possessive of that film and the importance of it being seen as perfect, 100%, um, that they would seek out the critics that didn't like it, including me, and they would like, hammer them really hard and the way in which they talk led me to believe that these were not film twitter people these are regular people and so like they're still engaged they're engaged enough to check out rotten tomatoes and further engaged to be upset when a movie that is something of an event for them uh is not well received and so i do think that there's still although admittedly it is the fourth film in a franchise yeah and so 
in a way, it's almost maybe it's grandfathering in importance or relevance well, to I these people. Well, I think there are a few things. One is that they might not be film Twitter people, but they're probably Disney people, you know, sure, which sure. is its own sort of psychosis. And but even apart, tell from, me about it. <laughs> and I uh, so I have I said this back when Game of Thrones was on. Yeah. That on Twitter, I try to be a little bit more positive, or at least I don't try to like random other people's parade. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care about this thing, but I'll, this is my podcast. I'll say it. Um, I'm done hearing about Galaxy's Edge. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't care. And it's care. the same and it photo is. over yeah. and over again. I know. Like, everyone's I like, know it's, the more- it. it's like, are, did you go to Galaxy's Edge or did you just grab a photo from Google Image Search? Because you're right. doing, doing the same. What'd you say? Uh, I said impossible to tell. Uh, the difference. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm saying that on the podcast. I don't care. It sounds ridiculous to me. It sounds ridiculously expensive when it, Disneyland is also already ridiculously expensive. And yeah. if you can afford to go to Disneyland and go to Galaxy's Edge, be ashamed of that. Don't be on the internet <laughs> bragging about how much money you have. It's fucking tacky. Um, I don't <laughs> see it that way. It's someone engaging with a cultural thing, but to me, it's like and it's every two hundred dollars on a fucking lightsaber. <laughs> what? Yeah, you they can build your own lightsaber, for like and it costs two hundred dollars. <laughs> That's weird. That's not a new feature. They've had that for a long time because of the Star Tours thing. But I guess if you can, if you can do it, you do. You can build a droid. Who knows how the fuck much yeah. that costs? It's absurd to me. The thing that gets me is that there's nothing particularly unique about it at this point. And again, clearly, like there is a a point at which like there's a, there's probably a sign that says, "Hey, uh, here's a good photo op." area well, no, there's always the same the angle then, of the yeah, fucking maybe, Millennium Falcon. But I think unlike the rest of Disneyland. Everything within Galaxy's Edge, like they even like, didn't like Pepsi make special cans just for Galaxy's Edge so they would like fit into the design of the world? Like, there's no signage like that. There's no, like, the park employees aren't in the normal Disney Mm -hmm. thing, they're in in Star Wars uh, thing. And the funny thing to me about that is, wow, there's nothing there to break your illusion except for the hundreds of people in cargo shorts and sandals. (laughs) Yeah. Um, anyway. if, they, <laughs> if they swapped you out uh, as you came into the land yeah. for like, then I would appreciate it. Make you go down a bat pole that dresses you along the way. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is that this is just getting back to my original point. Individual movies still matter and probably will for sure. a while. That doesn't make the mo- the movies as a cultural force matter. Um, and I and I guess that so okay we we talked about the word matter. Now I'm going to say the word culture. Okay. Like, what do we mean by cultural force? I just mean breaking out of whatever people are, you know, especially enthusiastic about that. Okay. Like, there's a certain number of books every year that will only be read by book people, you know, sure. but a certain number break through and become part of the culture, too. And that's, I think that's kind of where movies are, too, that we stopped having a broad awareness of just, you can't reference a movie that isn't number one at the box office anymore, you know, and have people know what you mean by it. Uh, I want to, so I want to go back to <coughs> the individual movie thing. Cause that's actually, so I had, uh, read your tweet. I think I probably liked it. Um, yeah, I liked it. Uh, um, did you retweet it? Um, I did not retweet <laughs> it. Oh. Sorry. I, I faved it. I'm on, I'm old school Twitter. Got I still it. say fave. I faved it. So um, does the motion picture late night. Uh, yes, I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought of that too, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, but as far as individual moves, so I, I had seen your tweet, and it was, I guess, kicking around my brain, yeah. because a, a week or two ago when I texted you about doing the episode, it was because I was flipping through channels and, as everyone always does, landed on Shawshank Redemption and decided to watch the rest of the movie. Totally. And that's what got me thinking, like, 
has there been like okay you had titanic was like what three years after yeah. shawshank redemption like even the movies that do break through are there going to be movies that are that enormous anymore that have that kind of impact yeah i mean that's the weird thing is i was thinking about this in terms of just like stand-up jokes or jokes on weekend update like a lot of jokes on Saturday Night Live or other popular comedy forms still reference movies from 20 years ago yeah. because there aren't modern reference points. <laughs> right. This is, and it's, so what's the last is the last one of those that I could think of is maybe the dark Knight that was really huge. Yeah. But even that's like, I mean, I'm tempted to just not count franchise movies because right. it's a built in broad cultural awareness. And at this point franchises, if we're saying that like, TV is more relevant than or more important culturally right. than film. Well, franchises these days are often treated like serialized, just serialized TV shows. And so in a way it's almost like the degree to which they're important is sort of borrowed as a concept from TV now to a certain extent. And I also think that the similarity between a lot of them makes it so like referencing any one of them is meaningless. Sure. I don't think the dark Knight um, fits in that category. There's individual lines that people remember or moments that stand out, but you know, you couldn't reference apart from Doctor Strange and like have it pierce the culture. So maybe two things. One, you just Tyler said something you said to a certain extent, which reminded me of the time that Tyler told me that he uses that as a nice way of saying no. I disagree with you. I don't know if that's oh, what I, you're I, doing. I don't re- remember saying it just now. So, uh, but that's. Do you remember saying that's what yes. you when you're doing your like um, uh, Bible study? What is it? Oh, oh yeah. Years ago, like when I was, when I, I was leading a couples. Bible study. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and there would be people that would say something and it's like, well, it's not like I have the final word, but I am often leading the discussion right. and there are people that will sometimes say something and they mean it well intentioned, but it's like, this is so far off the mark, not as far as interpretation, but as far as the conversation we're having. <laughs> and so they'll be like, well, what about this? And I was like, wow, that's almost an achievement that you're that far off. And, and so I'd be, I'd be like, I'd be like, I'd be like uh, I mean, I think to a certain extent, but also, and then it's like, that's me way of saying we're not going down yeah. that path. So I don't know if you ever having that conversation before, but you have forever ruined the phrase to a certain oh, extent for me. I always think it's someone nicely saying no. Uh, but no, the other thing I was going to say is cause I was thinking about big box office movies like the dark Knight. people. I feel like, have often made fun of avatar for making a shit ton of money and then not sticking around in the cultural conscious. Right. Is that actually a product? Is that actually a symptom of avatar itself or is that a symptom of what we're talking about? Here? It might be a symptom of what we're talking about. And also the fact that avatar hasn't yet had a sequel. Um, because I mean, there aren't a lot of movies to compare avatar to. There aren't a lot of non franchises that end up the most successful movie of the year. The only one I can think of since then has been American Sniper, which yeah. is a similar thing. Uh, apart from referencing the broad strokes of it, you know, there's nothing specific in the movie that people can yeah. recall. Right. There's but they no... just made that uh, sequel to American Sniper, American Woman. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just going to stick with that, huh? Yeah. Sienna Miller. Yeah. And her yeah. adventures post. Right. Yeah. Post her husband's death. Is that where you're going? <laughs> yeah, <that's> <laughs> Terrible, <laughs> awful death um, based on a true story. Yeah. Uh, and it's and and this is where you know my own connection with the larger culture right. uh, is limiting because I think of something which at this point is ten years old, but I think of something like uh, Inglorious Bastards, and there are a few lines from that, a, a few character moments from that that I will reference with friends, and that I will hear other people reference, and then I realize like, well, it's only movie people. Right. It was a film that was seen a lot at the time, and certainly. Tarantino films are, are usually pretty quotable, um, but that's one where I'm like, I don't know if actual people have s- still think of that. Yeah, I really don't. Probably know. not. 
Um, and I do think, and then there's stuff like, you know, social network was a really big movie at the time. Yeah. But I do think, you know, to go back to, I'm, I'm fascinated that if you go back about 30 years, um, to see what was number one at the box office oh, sure. is fascinating. Like Rain Man, that's that's, that's usually my go-to. Rain Man was the number oh, the one, one movie of that year. Kramer versus I was Kramer. Say, yeah, that's my exactly go-to too. The year yeah. of Alien and Apocalypse Now <laughs> and all that jazz and number one and the and the Black Hole to go back to that uh, and number one was Kramer versus Kramer. Terms of Endearment was number one that right. year, and I mean it's insane to think of that. And also kind of like amazing best years of our lives was the highest grossing movie of that year. And for a while was the second highest grossing movie of all time uh, behind gone with the wind. Like it was so, so crazy that movies like for adults and often just these like one, uh, these one shot (laughs) dramas uh, could be that big of a deal. Yeah. And now they've just put all their money in the IP bag. Yeah. And I think this summer it's starting to turn on them. And yeah, if even the IP movies can't pierce through, to the general populace. I, then. I, I do the, think Get Out's going to last. Yeah. No. Again, individual movies. Absolutely. Right, sure. Sure. Still make. But it's still fun to talk about which ones. <laughs> sure. uh, but I think the thing you were talking about these these dramas aimed at adults. I mean, uh, is that what that's what TV shows are now? Sure. Right. Like, I, don't, I haven't watched Big Little Lies, but I mean that seems like, yeah. Jen, Jen loves seems it. like the kind yeah. of thing that we're talking about. Uh, although that got a sequel. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what it is, right? It was a mini series that they decided to yeah, make a basically uh, a second season of. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, what we were saying is that TV, which I, you know, my personal phobia about being out of touch sure. is really kicking into gear here because I have increasingly not watched TV for like the last four years, except yeah. for a handful of shows. Um, yeah, every time I hear about a show coming back, I'm like, "There's no way that's still on." Um, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, but the problem is now that there's too much TV, and the idea that you're going to I don't believe that. You don't have to watch all of it. That's the problem, though, <laughs> is that, like, and this is the advantage movies always had, is you could kind of keep up. You know, you could drop in where you wanted and pick up a movie here or there, but with TV, it's like, unless you're in it for several years, you know, you can't kind of glancingly... Uh, get into big little lies or like even comedy series, which used to be pretty episodic. Right. Like even those are serialized now. Yeah. I started watching uh, broad city for the first time from the beginning and I had to convince my wife, Julie, that like you don't need to watch every episode because it was a rare comedy that has yeah. almost no continuity. So the question is this, are we officially, cause you know, you were talking about theater. We're talking about opera and those went away because they were replaced with something. Are we, are you officially saying that movies are being replaced by television? I don't even know if it's TV anymore. Yeah. I, I think it's maybe video that. games. I, I think know. video games and YouTube. Sure. Memes. Memes. Yeah, yeah. that's memes. true. And honestly, like over the past couple of years, <laughs> I think politics took a big dig out of the entertainment industry Yeah, because people are either just too exhausted from it all to enjoy themselves or they're too tuned in to pay attention to anything else. Yeah. And I mean, and if you look at like a lot of what comedy is doing right now, like that is so at this point a function of politics, which is fine. Right. But I feel like there are a lot of people that sort of pull away from that because like I already have this elsewhere. It doesn't have necessarily the punchlines, but it is enough of a punchline itself at this point that that's kind of okay. Um, Yeah, it's uh, it's not a thing that necessarily like scares me because movies as a concept because movies can always be watched um 
you know, in the same way that that people will still reference Star Wars, uh, Shawshank Redemption, and stuff like that, movies that admittedly are are decades old now. Um, but I'm talking about the original Star Wars, obviously. Obviously, um, but uh, you know, I don't think that I don't think that movies as a concept will will ever be unimportant in the same way that opera is unimportant. Um, I think partially because a live performance is always going to be seen as less accessible than something that you can watch anytime, anywhere. I think necessarily it is less accessible. I mean, just by almost definition, yeah. you have to show up somewhere. Yeah. And so I think that's, I think as long as film and movies are accessible and of course there are more to, <laughs> to a certain extent, this is not me saying, uh, they are more accessible than they've ever been. Certain movies, some of right. them, because of that, some of them just go away. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, if they never made the transition from VHS to uh, DVD, I'm looking at you, Candy Mountain. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad I kept my VHS of that, um, though I have no way to play it. Uh, and so, so I don't think it's ever going to go away completely. I think it's just going to become. I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to become, it's going to remain individually important. It will just become part of just one more aspect of the larger media landscape. Yeah. Maybe the, the comparison that's got made to books is maybe more. Yeah. Because books are more accessible. Yeah. And I, I think movies are also stuck in, in some ways a harder position than books where unless it's streaming for free on something people subscribe to. Sure. It's inconceivable how you could get a hold of it. I mean, we have a Slack channel at work, for fellow cinephiles. And I mentioned that I saw a French film called, uh, Bella Pine the other night, which is really great. And people were like, it's on streaming. How did you see it? And so I yeah. rented it on Amazon. It is even like fairly accessible forms yeah. of movies are still, wait, people don't, sorry, I guess I don't, I don't really differentiate between this is me. Uh, I'm, re- I'm rich, everybody. I would still think of something that's rentable as available on streaming because it's still, you still stream, right? I think it's something that's included in something you're already paying exactly, for, as it's, opposed to something you pay for individually. It's an awareness so, of the options. of SVOD versus TVOD is a sure. Yes, um, subscription I, video on demand. Versus yeah, I guess transactional I, video. On I demand. think of video on demand as streaming as two different things. Um, even though it doesn't quite make sense, there's something because you're not downloading it, so no. you're still streaming. Right. Like you're still streaming it when you rent it. Yeah, yeah, okay. But I think, the but f- on streaming means. In, it means S five. It means included. That, in the yeah. yeah, that's been my impression of how people tend to use the term. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's uh, as I was scrolling through Scott your Twitter today, looking for the the tweets <laughs> uh, in question, and I didn't scroll back far enough. You tweet more than I thought. Um, I, I don't. Have, I, have I don't tiny follow any of time throughout the day. Uh, sure. It's just yeah, enough yeah. time to get a tweet out. Um, and you mentioned this, and this is something I was talking with Jen about. Um, the amount of, for lack of a better term, panic about the office no longer being available <laughs> on Netflix starting in a couple of years. Yeah. Um, is I didn't even realize it wasn't happening for a couple of years. Yeah, right. Next yeah, year like, sometime. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's, it's fascinating to me because like, well, if you, first off, it's probably indicative of something that NBC is going to be doing yeah. like CBS or anybody else. But, um, but I also, it's just like, well, first off, you you have it now. It's it's just you're upset that you just won't always have it. First off, I feel like that almost devalues the show. Yeah, you're like well, I'm not going to seek it out. <laughs> I like that it's there, uh, and then I can watch it this whenever to me I speaks of how 
not great the office is. <laughs> and like, just, but also how not bad it is that it's right, just yeah. there. It's just there. It's yeah. the perfect uh, thing to just be there. Yeah. Um, and this is off topic, but the thing, the idea that NBC Universal making their own streaming service or whatever, yeah. how much of this can the market sustain? No, I think this is perfectly on topic own. is exactly why I don't see Netflix movies having a long longevity because, you know, for now, Netflix is the thing that everyone subscribes to because it's easy and has a broad catalog. Yeah. But as has been reported several times, like friends in the office are the most streamed things on Netflix. Yeah. Eventually all those things are going to be taken away and less people are going to subscribe to Netflix and get exposed to call. I also call me by your maybe, which makes no sense. Uh, for example, the recent motion picture, whose name I cannot recall. Um, but yeah, so this idea that new streaming content is going to be somehow hit the mainstream consistently. I, I just don't see that happening. I think it's going to be an arms race for streaming. Right. Yeah. And people are going to realize how exclusivity is kind of the enemy. Like, yeah, Netflix is available to everybody, but if not everybody subscribes to whatever thing, and that's yeah. the only way they're releasing their movies. And that's true for almost a hundred percent of the things Netflix puts out. They don't put out discs. They don't release to other platforms. You either subscribe to Netflix or you don't watch it. Yeah. And that's not a sustainable model for any kind of culture. You know, there's no there's no equivalent in any other culture for something that's available in one platform. Yeah, and I, I brought this up on the show before. Back when studios used to own movie theaters and only show their right, that got struck down. Like, yeah. at what point is this yeah, legally that, challengeable? That's a great question. I, I um, think as because I I was thinking about like. I was talking with Jen today about the office and like that it's going to be NBC universal. Right. So it's like, okay, so that means there's going to be a moment where Jurassic park is available only on the NBC universal. Right. But the, I think here's the difference is that you can still get like on, I mean, whatever iTunes is going to become, right. Uh, you can still pay to watch the office there, you know? And so until that, if they take it down literally to the point where you cannot, pay to watch it you you literally only can get it if you subscribe to the streaming service i think that is when and i don't know if they'll ever do it uh that way because they could be losing out on money um and also because someone might see that as uh vertical integration um and so i i do wonder if uh I do wonder if they're ever going to get to a point where they're considered a full-on monopoly because I think as long as it's still available in some capacity on some other service, which I think it will be, I don't think it officially qualifies. Sure, catalog titles, but new stuff? Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so the idea, I, I can't get over the idea that people who have Netflix are mostly watching Friends in the Office. That is hilarious to me because it reminds me of when I read back at like the height of like, end of like the Sopranos, like most HBO accounts were just watching like Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> Croft to one, three, three. Or yeah. That's mostly <laughs> what it was. Um, and that's hilarious to me. Um, I want to move on to another thing. Sure. Uh, as the kind of movie consumers that we are, the things that we look for in movies, which I think tends to be, uh, things that are, um, not the same as every other movie, some variety, some, uh, some innovation is the decreased cultural importance of movies. Maybe a good thing for us. Um, I think there are good ends to it. I think the distribution of like festival bound foreign films is better than it has ever been like objectively. So, you know, 
in the nineties, the new Godard movies wouldn't always get released. And he was still, you know, one of the huge biggest names in world cinema and cinema history. Uh, but his movies didn't always get released. Now you can consistently count on them getting released in several cities, in fact. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of a lot of like weird form, like outfits like cinema guild or grasshopper or, uh, I don't know, David, you get the same emails. I do. <laughs> Who else were doing Cohen media group? Cohen media. Yeah. I mean, all these places, they couldn't, and they couldn't really have swung the same way that they do now, uh, 20, 30 years ago. And a lot of that has to do with, the fact that distribution's changed to digital and it's a lot cheaper to distribute movies more widely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make profit in other ways. You know, you can't, you don't have to discount on theatrical and maybe some rentals, you know. You can rent it out to institutions for fairly cheap. You can put it on streaming. Uh, now you can build public libraries through Canopy. <laughs> you know, the, the profit, the potential profit streams for uh, very offbeat movies are better than they've been in a long time. But are, is is it possible that we're in a little bubble of that, and that might that's, go away? That's I mean, possible I, too. You mentioned Canopy in New York Public yeah. Library, yeah. no longer supporting Canopy. And like that's that's scary to me. Yeah, and Cohen Media is, uh, from what I understand, a little on the rails financially. Though they just did buy Landmark Theaters, so I guess maybe they might be hurting from that temporarily. Well, I know Cohen Media doesn't do they don't seem to do press screenings anymore for their releases oh, really? everything is a link I haven't gotten invited to a Cohen press screening mm-hmm. I just I just get Vimeo links from them yeah I guess it's been a couple of years for me as well yeah um, but yeah it could very well be a bubble where and I think that's also part of the danger is for a while I did look at these independent outfits as kind of our saviors and they're still distributing the kind of mid-budget stuff the studios would have released way back when um, but it's harder for them to stay in business I mean Broad Green is folded. Um, I'm trying to think of another place on that level. Magnolia is releasing far less than they did a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, A24 is even scaled back. Um, yeah. Uh, Broad Green, I think um, they reached too far too soon. I, I, I don't know if that's they the, did. I, don't, I don't know if the market uh, it was, if it killed Broad Green or if Broad Green just got to its uh, eyes are bigger than stomach, maybe in a way. I, I mean, maybe, but just the fact that they couldn't take one big swing, you know, and. Uh, or maybe a couple of big swings, whereas, you know, for all their faults, the studio system could take as many swings as they wanted because they were almost guaranteed to make a profit by the end of the year. Um, and I think losing that foundation has hurt not only what movies get made and financed and distributed, but also uh, that same awareness that I've been talking about where because there were only, for a time, you know, six or seven studios putting stuff out, it was easier for them to get the word out to magazines. They had kind of the standard channels or radio or wherever else. It's easier for them to find those channels. Whereas like, you know, how much of a marketing budget can Kino Lorber be working with, you know, or whoever yeah. else. Go see the queen in theaters this summer. Sure. Don't tell Spe- me what to do. Speaking of Kino <laughs> Lorber, uh, newly restored 1968 documentary. Anyway. So doing my part for Kino. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess the thing that, that gets me, like any time, and I feel like you know these conversations are, are being had and have been for the last few years, uh, which is not a bad thing. I think it's always good to assess where movies are as an entity. Um, but I do find myself wondering, like, what does that mean for us? Like, what does that mean sure. for, like, a website that reviews movies, a podcast that talks about movies? You know, you guys are in the film industry. I think that, like, 
I think as far as film classes, I'll be fine because I get to talk about what movies can be and what they have been. Right. Um, and I don't have to talk much about where they're going, but it is interesting to check in like when I was teaching middle schoolers and the number of them that's, that were taking the film program because they wanted to be YouTubers instead yeah. of directors, like that was worth noting to me. Um, but beyond that, like it's not that I think any of these jobs are going to go away, but it does make me wonder like what is the... When talking about something no longer being important, my first thought is, well, what does that mean as far as the larger conversation? Will it become like opera? Will it become this idea that the only people having the conversation are people that, or any kind of any kind of in depth conversation, are people that are not really that tuned into larger culture? Will it become more of a niche thing? Not that film ever will be completely that. But discussion of film and analysis of film, will it become, you know... I think it already is a niche thing. Like, what... I mean, ever since Siskel and Ebert went off the air and the Premiere magazine folded, I mean, you still have Entertainment Weekly, but really, like... Entertainment Monthly for for now. Exactly. Um, And so, like, what's left to discuss film in a general sphere? I mean, every film website or film podcast I go to or listen to is clearly targeting a niche crowd. Sure. They're the topics they discuss, the articles they write are not targeting a broad demographic and haven't been for years. And I guess like in like YouTube critics, um, who might spend an hour on one movie, there's also, there also often has to be an entertainment value in that, in, in what they're doing. Like they're playing like sort of a character, an exaggerated version. So like you're tuning in for their personality just as much as anything they might be saying. Right. And so like, tuning into that is less about engaging about movies and more like, Oh, what does this fun person have to say right. about whatever topic it might be? It yeah. could be politics. It could be movies. It could be whatever. And I know people accuse Siskel and Ebert of treading the same waters, but I think, I mean, they're interesting enough, but they weren't as, I guess, snazzy. I don't know. Like there wasn't as much pizzazz to the show. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, but, and, and to me, and I've said this on the show before that there are people who are like, Oh, I love when they disagree. And to me, I was like, Oh, that just makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it, and, I, I agree with that. that that's it, why I do a podcast with you. We generally that's, agree yeah, that's with each true. other or increasingly we're just watching different movies so we can't yeah. disagree with each other anyway. <laughs> Which we're I just kinda, telling each other about the movies that we watch. And it's like, that's interesting. I'm not going to watch <laughs> yeah. it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting, uh, working on, I'm working on a project right now that kind of talks about like the history of film and bringing it up to current, the, you know, the current day. And I think like, I think where film could be seen as important is how it fits into what we were talking about before, how it fits into the political discussion, uh, which is to say concepts of representation. Mm-hmm. And so like, because you know, film becomes very important in 2015 when people are saying like, Oh, but like uh, straight out of Compton wasn't nominated for Oscars. Creed was not nominated for, it was only nominated for supporting actor. Like in that instance, like suddenly film is super important. Uh, and so uh, yeah, crazy rich Asians is important. uh, Maybe. Yeah. But not as a movie, but because of right. Like it's almost like a very good movie. It's almost like they're like people wanting to have a larger political discussion are sort of adopting film, right? Uh, and like, okay, we'll bring you into this as long as we need you to be part of it, and then we will let you go. Yeah, and I think, but I think that is kind of keeping movies barely alive in the yeah. same way that, frankly, uh, 
conservatism for a while kept movies alive. Um, I, I mean, I think this, one of the smarter things conservatism did culturally is to abandon movies entirely and just start making their own shit. Uh, <laughs> but in the process, I do think that's helped to devalue the mainstream motion picture is that there isn't a persistent pushback keeping the, them in the larger cultural discussion. As soon as conservatism decided they can make its own movies, they didn't need Hollywood to you know, go by its right. own standards. When was the last time you heard about a church group boycotting a mainstream movie? Like, it just doesn't happen anymore. It's uh, It's uh, been a while. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I guess that, you know, a movie's ability to make any one person or one group angry... I guess, I mean, Green Book kind of had that, yep. but even then it was mostly movie people, you know? Yeah, uh, probably. Like, the the normies that I know that saw <laughs> Green Book thought it was a perfectly fine film, which I would say it is. Right. Um, as opposed to, like, the, the, the moral outrage that movie people who are politically minded as well um, felt about it. And so... Yeah, it's compared like looking at like Black Klansman versus Green Book as opposed to Do the Right Thing versus um, Driving Miss Daisy. Sure. Like that was a much bigger conversation at the time than on on every level, on yeah. the cultural level. Like Do the Right Thing like had a huge cultural impact. Yeah, for sure. Um, that Black Klansman didn't, except for people like us and and admittedly like maybe a, a black audience as well. Yeah, I mean the other thing that's changed since then is that independent film has been. Uh, commodified into its own yeah. thing, it no longer really means like independent at all. I mean, yeah. aside from it's almost its own genre at this point. It's that, but it's also just the source of money to a certain extent. <laughs> to a certain extent, but you know what? I do think that. Yeah. Uh, but it's also just the source of money and the aims of it. You know, independent film used to mean a certain independent thought and a yeah. feeling you couldn't get from the mainstream. But now, independent is just cheaper mainstream movies. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I just always thought of independent as being a, a financial term. Yeah. If it's you want to get a started, but classification, yeah. but I think the reason people were drawn to independent films is because they were giving them something that they couldn't get from a studio movie. Now it, you get the yeah. exact same thing. Like the whole reason, again, when it first started, the whole reason that it was independent is because it had to be, because right. they were trying to do something that studios weren't that interested in. You yeah. Know, like you look okay. at if, when you're a fan of Orson Welles, like myself, or you're a fan of John Cassavetes, um, like they were both involved in the film industry often as actors, but when it came to direct uh, directing something like the series, like we can't pay for this. And so like, well, I will, I will have to do it independently because it has a sensibility that studios are not willing to put money behind. I, st- I think, and that's going back to uh, like sure. the '60s, you know. Yeah, but I think Scott's point is, I, I take what you're saying, but I think you're being a little bit too generalizing. I sure. still think there are independent movies. Oh, for that sure, are independently minded. Oh, I, or else I would give up on movies. Probably. <laughs> right. No, I'm, I'm not saying again. None of these things are to say things don't exist, but because independent film has, you know, for a time in the mid 2000s, found tremendous financial success by just doing, like I said, cheaper mainstream movies, uh, it, it no longer automatically means what it did. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I know that we don't... We're not big fans of Kevin Smith and not big fans of Clerks, but these were essentially non-actors, or at least actors you didn't know about, right. uh, because they were just, like, local, and it just came out of this random place, as opposed to, you know, oh, well, now it's independent film where... It's actors that you know, but they're, and they are probably taking some risks, right. but it's still like, 
they're doing slightly better work and making a little less money. Yeah, yeah, and and it could be it could still be refreshing, and you can see like an actor or director doing something that you're like clearly they're loving the freedom to do it. Yeah, but compared to you know El Mariachi uh, or Clerks <laughs> or something like that, like it's it's night and day. Yeah, and you don't. I mean, maybe this has hurt the cause too, is that you don't hear those stories about people selling their blood or their whole comic book collection or right. whatever to finance the movie. Right. They're just, you know, I mean, this is a huge problem in the movie industry, but typically it tends to be people from money who, you know, they're getting money from their parents or their parents' friends or whatever to finance their first movie. And maybe they have some Hollywood connections to get one star in there too. The total grassroots movement uh, is really, really rare. Well, it's, but is that... <coughs> where's that coming from? Because I think... To me, I blame maybe the big festivals. Yeah, I think that's yeah. it. I, I, because, it, like, it, someone could still sell their comic book collection and make a movie. The problem is that the infrastructure isn't there for them to get it to people the same way it was in the 90s. Well, because the Sundances of the world are programming movies that are independent but star Shia LaBeouf and shit. Right, right but also, I think... <laughs> <laughs> and I like Tony Blake, but this is I think this is a result of the DVD era that the stream era has reinforced that audiences have an unconscious higher standard for how movies are supposed to look and the idea of tolerating unprofessional video quality or audio quality in the name of getting more interesting content I, I don't think people are going to stick around for that that's tragic to me. I agree, but I I think like maybe, I mean, you're, maybe you're right. But the yeah, few movies uh, that do break through that don't really have any stars are do so because they have like astounding visuals or you know there's something that you can sell in a trailer. You know you couldn't sell the modern day Stranger Than Paradise in a trailer. You know that's yeah yeah. It's I remember there's an old uh, bit by uh, David Spade when he had a, an HBO special uh, in the mid '90s, and he was talking about independent film and that like all of his artsy friends were like oh you should see this and it's like well it costs it goes it costs the same as like the big movies like the big <laughs> spectacle movies so like how about this how about i go see uh titanic and you see the fucking zapruder tape and uh and i remember being like that's actually pretty funny the idea of but at the same time uh yeah, I think he was making the argument like, how about I spend 50 cents on this uh, so it's less of a risk for me financially and right. as far as my time. I don't agree with that assessment, but I wonder if, if a number of people do. At the time, there was such a novelty to those types of movies yeah. that I think people were really excited about, certainly younger people. Yeah. I think there's a generational thing as well. Um, you know, the big mainstream films that came out of like the Reagan-Bush era and like now we have people that are high school and college age and they want something that reflects their, uh, their sensibilities a little bit more. And that just wasn't happening in mainstream films. So they had to look elsewhere. Yeah. And, and, the, and so people their, their age were also making movies, but didn't have a lot of money to do it. And I also think that there are just fewer movies made that reflect the contemporary culture. And this doesn't even have to be a political or, uh, you know, uh, directly social aspect. It's just yeah. like, I mean, it's pretty rare that I even see movies where people have cell phones. Like, it, there's so many movies now made I think that all the time made by people who are at the top of their game. Like Paul Thomas Anderson has a movie, made a movie set in the present in almost 20 years. Yeah, like these are the, the major movie uh, makers of our time are not interested in exploring the contemporary culture. Yeah, 
and it's and like and if you if you ever see a movie of any genre where someone's like looking at their phone it's usually the very fact of showing that is like a totally. comment yeah. on it uh, and they're like oh we're not connecting with each other it's like yeah he's looking at his phone for two seconds <laughs> all right it's probably yeah. like, I remember Jen and I when we were in uh, we were in Switzerland and we were sitting at this uh, like outdoor cafe and we were, and we had decided that we were going to change our trip. We were going to stay in the town that we were in one more day, okay, as opposed to leaving the next day. And so we were like on our phones, looking for like, okay, how can we get a refund from the hotel we we're going to be staying at? Like all of that. And so we're sitting at the at the table, and we're both looking at our right. phones. And I and we had this realization: like, if somebody looked at us right now, they would see like, oh, this mar- this this married American couple yeah. uh, at this beautiful aging millennials, uh, <laughs> aging millennials, uh, all of us. Um, and, uh, you know, they'd say like they're so disconnected with right. from each other. Meanwhile, what we were doing was, hey, we are loving this so much. We want to extend yeah. it. But there are considerations. And thank God we have our phones so we can do it here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, instead of like don't find a phone booth and call uh, your yeah, travel agent. Exactly. <laughs> and so. Uh, so yeah, and I would love I would love movies to reflect that the idea that like yeah uh, actually technology can in a way make things not merely more convenient but it allows you to do something so that you can then reconnect with people and not spend so much time on like these or just other acknowledge that that's what people are doing it doesn't have to be positive yeah, or negative yeah. it just it is it's a part neutral. of our social fabric and yeah. Yeah. it's like the idea that in a movie if, if anybody ever coughs on screen it means right. they're gonna get sick later <laughs> like with they're gonna it's like oh a cough cancer obviously yeah. nobody yeah. coughs unless they have cancer yeah uh yeah um so I'm doing the thing that is the idiots on Twitter have been doing, which is immediately looking for the exception to everything. Sure, sure. Say. So the major filmmaker who is aware, okay, Olivier Assayas. I was actually just thinking of Assayas, but I mean, he's you know he's not winning Oscars <laughs> here or even getting nominated. Okay. So as far as like some, as far I as think as of him as a major filmmaker in film circles, he is. Yeah, uh, but no, I mean he's a perfect example of someone who's still very keyed in, still very aware, and still very interested. Sean Baker. I was going to say Tangerine uh, is like yeah. that, that I, the concept for that film is very early to mid nineties, yeah. uh, in its sensibilities yeah. and like utilizing what, what well, do I have um, that I can use? What, you, what year is Tangerine? 2015? 15. Yeah. Already a period piece. If you go to that stretch of Santa Monica. Yeah. <laughs> I know. To, yeah. It's completely Donut time's gone. That used and, to be my neighborhood. Yeah. I moved a couple of So ago. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Go ahead. Oh no. Uh, I, had someone else in mind too, but now I forgot them. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. So my question is this, you know, we're, so in talking about the nineties and like this resurgence, like every, every 30 years, like in the sixties, you had this resurgence of right. often again, it almost generationally, like a younger audience requires something studios, feel like uh, we don't really know how to do that so we will bring in people of that generation either bring them in from film school or in the 90s like well these people are making their own films we'll acquire them and market them right Um, is that but of course all of that is before YouTube all of that is before uh, phone uh, cameras on phones and all that sort of thing so is that type of resurgence possible yeah I keep looking for because all those both those movies were responding to nascent things you know there was independent film in the 50s it wasn't you know it didn't go down as the high quality like Cassavetes type movie right that would capitalize on that and then 70s Hollywood was really responding to the success of 50s and 60s foreign films mm-hmm. um 
and then independent film in the 90s was responding to independent film in the 80s which was much lower budget right. and lower distributed but was there was still like a nascent thing that it was building off of and I don't know what that thing is right now and it might be there and we might not just see it in the present but I think I mean I it, I honestly think that it is it's YouTube in so far as that is how younger speaking right. generationally that is how people younger than us probably by five to ten years they think in terms of that first including me like i if i have time to kill rather than spend two hours watching a movie which it's like well i don't have two hours so i'll watch something on youtube it could be a clip from something or it could be an episode of something i've been getting into kitchen nightmares which has been stressing me out um i've seen every episode i have no doubt i have no doubt and the u.s kitchen (laughs) nightmares i love it yeah it's natalie and i will still say we'll like taste something and go it's bland because <laughs> that's uh, one of his main main things or he'll just go damn uh yeah i've only been watching like the most extreme ones where he just uh tastes something he goes he goes this is bullshit um but anyway so have you watched uh, sorry have you watched amy's the two-part uh, scott sailor's owner the 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 one that gordon left without finishing uh, no i don't think so oh man um oh man I watched the. Uh, this is for the, our TV journal. Um, Honestly, we should start a podcast about <laughs> Kitchen Nightmares because I love Kitchen Nightmares so much. You, you got, no you've, got a, you've got a deal. <laughs> um, so uh, what I was going to say is that, like, I think I think at this point, generationally, I think it's moving away from film. I think it's informed by by movies the way we know them, and it's moving into YouTube, um, and that is sad on one hand, but at the same time, I don't think it's ever going to migrate completely because there's only so much money to be made from YouTube. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Like you heard about, read those stories about people holding up YouTubers in that Hollywood and vine building and like trying to make a thing out of it. And it feels like that faded away a couple of years ago. So people yeah. realized there's not, you know, there's only so much money on the table. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a problem, but I also think the success and potential future of YouTube is, I, I'm not troubled by it because of like attention spans or whatever, you know, if there was great content being made on YouTube, that'd be great. Yeah. And maybe there isn't, I'm just missing it, but I think the most popular content, I could point you to a number of ASMR videos. <laughs> well, well, and, and those are long and, as fuck. Hang on, let me get to my point. Yeah. <laughs> my, this ties into my general point, which is that there's not a lot of fiction being made on YouTube. Sure. And I think the interest in what is on YouTube is a more direct reflection of reality. That's verging on documentary, but not quite. And it's more about personalities and shaping some semblance of reality for the audience to experience. And I think that's part of a much wider cultural devaluation of the power of fiction. Yeah. Um, Matt Zollersheis was talking about this when that uh, cat person article. Do you guys remember this? It was a New Yorker article oh, yeah. or something. It was not an article. It's a short story. Right. Yes. It was a short story. <laughs> but a lot of people were sharing it under the presumption that it was an article. Yes. Mm. That was so strange to me. Right. And Matt was pointing out that, you know, the reason this was able to catch on is because people thought it was an article and thought it was confessional because fiction right now doesn't hold the power they used to and people don't tend to see fiction as as representative as a memoir or a short or a confessional article or something like that and i think it it honestly comes out of i think it comes out of budget constraints fiction costs more right to make uh than nonfiction. i mean we've been t- we've been talking for 
years at this point about the idea of the uh, what is it, the special interest documentary, whatever it sure. is, human interest, yeah. human interest. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, and that uh, they're just like, okay, well, if we just ar- arrange a few interviews and then have some archival footage, it's like we could probably make this thing for at most. Ten million dollars. Yeah, at most. Yeah, that's even you know like a high budget, right? Like that. I'm really over yeah. <laughs> overstating, um, as opposed to like even a even a, a low budget fiction film. Ten million dollars is low, right? You know, and so I think it comes out of necessity when you have this many people wanting to make. I was going to say content. God help me. <laughs> they want to make some kind of right. narrative art, and it's like, well, either I can make something you know, fact-based or reality-based, whatever you want to say, documentary-based now, or I can just save money and make a fiction film, a fictional film that I can't even guarantee anybody will, will engage with. Whereas like with documentary, whether it be a podcast, whether it be uh, a series or a, or a film, there is something about documentary that just, it, I don't know. I think, it can create the good ones can create a sense of urgency that cause people to want to, to watch. Um, but I also, and there's just so damn many of them now. Yeah. But I think the costing is also an issue because movies that can be made very cheaply, that's viewed as almost a gimmick. Shane Cruz talked about, um, he didn't disclose the budget for upstream color because all anybody asked about with primer was how he made a movie for $7,000. Yeah. And primer is a rich, deep, fascinating movie to talk about and dissect, but all people wanted to ask about was the budget. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, going to like international Christian film festival. That's the other thing is on top of all of this, it's fascinating to be engaged with like the Christian film, right? Which is still emerging and they're still thinking in terms, you know, this conversation is certainly not being had there. Right. Um, because to them, it's like film, any kind of mainstream success in film, uh, financially or otherwise, is like that is the, you know, that's the holy grail. And and the, the conversation and this, this conversation of, yeah, but that's not even possible. And even if it is, it doesn't even matter that much anymore. That doesn't even enter into the conversation because they're well, not I, even, they're so far off. From I it. think they've built a system where it does matter and it's perfectly fine. Right. Without. It matters for that very specific exactly, audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and interestingly enough, there aren't that many documentaries <laughs> in that. <laughs> I, like they're still in the same way that, you know, uh, I don't know as much about Christian music, but a lot of my friends do. And they say that like Christian art is always about at most, uh, no, at least like 15 to 20 years behind right. secular. And so it, it is not that surprising that the idea of a documentary has not entered into it yet as an option. If you don't have a lot of money. Well, it's also because the most successful Christian films tend to be the most placating. Sure. Sure. And, you know, documentaries can be, and certainly the modern wave of liberal, you know, what, we, what have you been calling the moves like RBG? Um, oh, biographical documentaries? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Man, I just, uh, today, like, you forwarded the the screening for the Linda Ronstadt, I'm like, and I, I literally saw it on my phone, and I went like, holy fuck. Like, how <laughs> many of these are there going to be? Yeah. And a, a bunch. They're, they're just yeah. going to keep coming. Yeah. That one's made by directors. The people who made the Common Threads, the stories from the Quilt documentary okay. back in the, about the AIDS. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. In the late 80s. Um, I, 
I can't remember their names. It's a it's, yeah. it's a directing duo. I'm actually kind of interested in that one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're all interesting. <laughs> but it's to a certain extent, they're all barely. <laughs> they're, they're like The Office, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's there. It's there. It'll pass the time. Yeah, like I mean, uh, the last the last movie journal uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, I not was not the last one. Not the last one. Right. right. Two yeah. will go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For the listener. Once again, I was sick and I wasn't looking to watch anything particularly challenging. I was watching some Magnus Varda films, which I enjoyed. But then I was like, okay, I'm going to watch something just casually. And I found, and I was just scrolling through Netflix and I found like some documentaries that were, they, they looked mildly interesting. And I was like, this looks like, and right. like, oh, an hour, 15 minutes. Perfect. Right. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's, uh, and as someone who is the project I'm working on right now is essentially a documentary. It's a video in a video essay style. And, uh, yeah. And I'm able to do it for very little money. Yeah. Uh, so there is something to be said for that. All right. I think guys, we solved it. Movies. We, we made movies culturally <laughs> important again. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> See, now that's a red hat I can get behind. <laughs> I love it. Um, I need a bucket hat to fit all that <laughs> verbiage on there. But. Um, so you can find uh, us at battleshippretension.com. This week, there are uh, reviews of some very exciting independent films. Mm-hmm. Uh, not American independent films. There's Mexico's The Chambermaid, Portugal's Diamantino. There's the aforementioned The Queen. I reviewed that uh, re-release. I reviewed Maiden, which is a very inspiring documentary i guess a lot of talking head interviews though okay. yeah but they um, actually have footage of the boat right that, <coughs> this is what i said there's yeah. so much footage of the boat that i kind of spent a lot of time being like more of that less of the yeah well i wasn't even interested in the movie at all until i saw the trailer i was like got footage of the boat yeah there's I'm a in. lot of footage um yeah and it's, it's a very inspiring i definitely teared up the maiden not the maiden maiden is good but uh yeah the the chambermaid is the release of the week for me but it's only releasing in new york right now anyway what was i saying that's at battleshipretention.com. There's all sorts of other stuff there, um, all sorts of reviews, other podcasts. It's all at battleshipretention.com. You got, uh, what, what did uh, uh, Alex wrote about a Pasolini film for the Criterion Prediction mm-hmm. this week? I, again, I got to pick a fun header image, a guy with a with a pig on it, a pig's head on his head. Yeah. Uh, it was fun. All right. All that's our friend Jim at I Do Movies Badly is uh, talking oh, yeah. about Medicine for Melancholy, uh, starring our friend uh, Wyatt Sinek. Friend of the show, Wyatt Sinek, yeah. And it was. Uh, yeah, I made him watch Medicine for Melancholy. It sounds like he liked it. I haven't listened yeah. to that episode yet. It yeah, he seemed like he liked to like it. it. Um, more than he liked Funny Ha Ha. Um, uh, anyway, this, these things are all at the website. The website is a ton of fun. You can spend your whole day there. It's great. Uh, you can email us at david com or tyler at com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at DaveyPretension. You can follow Tyler at TylerPretension. Anything else to plug? Uh, not that I am aware of right now. Thank you. And... Scott, where can people tell you you're wrong on the internet? At Rail of Tomorrow, anytime. Uh, also, BattleshipRetention.com and at Criterion Cast, where we just did our, maybe Ryan hasn't published it yet, but will soon, our 10-year anniversary episode, celebrating 10 years of Criterion Cast. Oh, isn't that um, cute? Where we also talked about the exciting but somewhat precarious state of home video. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a whole other, I gotta listen I to that. Um, well, thank you for being here again, Yeah, Scott. anytime. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.